Today on Hearing is Believing. Our beginning had its beginning not in our own selves, but when He had a thought of us, before we had a single thought. Connecting contemporary culture to the timeless truths of God's Word, this is Hearing is Believing. You might not have given much thought to the name Rene Descartes, but you've probably been more influenced by him than you realize. Descartes is famous for his dictum, cogito ergo sum. You all know what that means, right? Of course, we all know what dead languages mean, Latin. Let me tell you what it means. It means I think, therefore, I am. I think, therefore, I am. And that thought in 1637 has been argued to be the most significant thought that birthed the United States of America. So you and I tonight are more Cartesian than we may even realize. At the height of that period in history was known as the Enlightenment. There came this philosophy that birthed the United States of America. And of course, the United States of America, they were searching for a more perfect union through another Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, from many, one. And taken to its extreme, the razor edge of the philosophy that birthed America, listen carefully, is an attempt toward absolute autonomy where the individual is understood as the reigning monarch. But absolute individualism has been challenged in our day, especially recently. It's an amazing turn of events. If you watch the news, you see all of these things happening all around us and very fast. It's as if our culture is confused and almost unaware of its own inconsistencies. For example, how can a society that celebrates my body, my choice, also call for honor and demand that we tear down statues and change the names on buildings that are dishonorable. Follow me here. At the core of individualism is the belief that I have the right to whatever I choose. But that notion rubs against an honor society. At the core of an honor society is the pursuit of the collective whole, the pursuit of the collective good for the whole. In a society that elevates honor, individuals speak and act in a way that was going to bring honor to the community and avoid whatever it takes to avoid bringing shame. And so within a society that celebrates individualism, innocence and guilt are the mechanisms of passing judgment. Innocence and guilt are the mechanisms of passing judgment. But within an honor society, a collectivistic society, the paradigms for passing judgment are not innocence and guilt. They're honor and shame. Shame and honor. And honor is exactly what I want to talk to you about this evening. 
As Christians, you and I have this privilege, this privilege of organized thought, this privilege of putting all things together, this privilege of prioritizing our individualism without allowing ourselves to become the sum total of rational thinking. Instead, you and I recognize that there's something greater than ourselves that sets the course of our thinking. And what is that that sets the course of our thinking? It's revelation. It's a word from God above us to us. As opposed to Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am, Christians, we say, He is, therefore I am. We ground ourselves, listen carefully, we ground ourselves not in ourselves, but outside ourselves. Our originate began began not in our minds, listen to this, but in His mind. Our beginning had its beginning not in our own selves, but when He had a thought of us before we had a single thought. I love C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, he was one time written a question. And the question was from someone who was uh, a prayer warrior, someone who was facing skepticism. His friends were coming at him and saying, you know what, you're praying, but you're really just talking to the ceiling. Your prayer is nothing more than your own thoughts echoing back around your head. And so he wrote Mr. Lewis and said, Professor Lewis, what am I to say? And in his fashion, Lewis answered. And his answer was a poem. Listen to the poem. They tell me, Lord, that when I pray, only one voice is heard, that I'm dreaming. You're not here. You're not there. This whole thing is absurd. Maybe they're right, Lord. Maybe they're right. Maybe there's only one voice that's heard. Lord, it's not mine. It's your voice. I'm not dreaming. You are the dreamer. And I am your dream. I'm not dreaming. You are the dreamer. And I am your dream. You see, as Christians, we ground our originate not in ourselves, but in God who is mindful of us. You see, here's the beautiful truth of the gospel. The gospel frees us from the trap of our own thoughts. It frees us from yourself being the sum total of your own thoughts. And it shows you not so much how you may see yourself, but the gospel demonstrates how God sees you. It was Martin Luther who encouraged his congregation with these words. Listen to what Luther said. So when the devil throws your sin in your face and declare that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell, and what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. 
And where he is, I shall be there also. Before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So we're not trapped in a Cartesian worldview. We're not trapped in our own thinking, I think, therefore I am. No, no, it's better than that. It's grander than that. He is, therefore I am. Our thoughts begin with Him. And so tonight, we come to principle number 10 in our series, Safe to Shore. And we're going to consider community. And we're going to seek to understand how the gospel shapes community. So take your Bible here tonight and turn with me to 1 Timothy. We'll be looking at chapter 5. Our text tonight is lengthy. It's 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through chapter 6 and verse 2. And if we're going to make it safe to shore, the point of tonight is that we need to understand that we can't do it alone. So principle number 10 is entitled this, Build Christian Community. And when we consider community, then we'll be able to understand honor. Hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, beginning in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their form of faith. Beside that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. 
Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot be hidden, cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray together this evening. Thank you for this text. Thank you that every word is true, that every word serves as our instruction by which we should live. Help us to seek you as we seek to know you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to highlight something. The reason that I put all of that together, the reason that I didn't want to break that up, there's a lot there, but there's a repeated theme throughout all of those sections, and there are repeated references to Christian Scripture, the Old Testament. Every one of the sections deals with the same phrase, honor, honor. And it's interesting, the word honor is uh, the first syllable in Timothy's name, Timaeo, Timaeo. The word Timothy literally means honoring God. And so Paul is calling Timothy to live up to his name. This is, who you, this is how, Timothy, you honor God, through honoring others. And so all of those references to the Old Testament, some in an explicit reference we have here in chapter 5 when it says... Uh, uh, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads the grain in verse 18. That's an explicit reference, but Scripture is principles in the Old Testament are, are laced all throughout this passage. And so all of those repeated references focus our attention on the type of community that God desires to build. And so think about that. God desires to build a community. And it's been so ever since the beginning. Think about Genesis for just a moment. Paul, remember, he's already reminded Timothy that Adam was created first. And so he already has all of that in his frame of reference as he's saying this. He tells Timothy to remember Genesis. But think about Genesis for just a moment. Adam was created first. And he was created alone. And when we go back to Genesis, we consider that it was not good for man to be alone. Well, why is that? Because of God's intention. God intended to fill the earth with those who worship and obey. In other words, God intended to fill the earth with a community filled with worshipers. And so the reason that it was not good for Adam to be alone is because Adam was literally incapable of fulfilling the mission of God alone. And so God said, this is not good. 
The first thing that he says is not good. So what does God do? He sets out to correct it. What did he do? He created a suitable, suitable helper for him. Male and female, the Bible says, he created them. And then he gave them a mandate. And the mandate that he gave was to fill the earth. Fill the earth with those who would bear the image of God. Fill the earth with those who would worship and obey. <clears throat> Fast forward the narrative for just a moment. What does God then tell Abraham? God then comes to Abraham, one person. And he says to that one person, from you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so here we get a further glimpse of God's plan. It's a cosmic plan. It's a plan for the sons of Abraham to be Israel. The sons of Abraham to be Israel. The sons of Abraham as Israel to be a light to the nations. And so God then has a cosmic plan. He desires to create a people for his own possession. He wants to build a community. So what do we have? We have this solitary man named Jesus who fits in this long lineage of the sons of Abraham. He's also a son of Adam. And he comes, and this solitary man, what does he do? Does he have a solitary ministry? No. He chooses 12. He chooses a cohort of those called learners, those called disciples. And the way that Jesus builds the community, remember this, is by putting the flame of his presence within his followers. He puts the flame of his presence within those who believe. He puts the spirit in his followers who then seals them until the day of redemption. And so God is building his church. But oftentimes, I'm afraid, when we think about God building his church, we might think of movements or moments, events, or programs, but God's work is with living stones, living stones, and He builds in the secret part of your heart and my heart as He molds us and fashions us into His likeness. We're fixing to come up upon the Christmas season and the song Away in the Manger. There's a little line in there that says, fit us for heaven. That's what God's doing. He's fitting us for His kingdom purposes. He's molding us. He's making us. And He does it sometimes with, with white, hot heat. As He convicts you of your sin and your unrighteousness. As He convicts me of my sin. And my unrighteousness, he gets us in a position so that he can mold us and make us because his desire is to build Christian community. So in our text this evening, we're going to consider three groups within the community that Christ is forming by his spirit. And the community that Christ is forming by his spirit is called the church, the ecclesia, the gathering the community. So three groups this evening, you can already guess, if we're going to consider three groups, how many points are we going to have? Three, because the text always guides the sermon. Three groups, three points, and we're going to consider how the gospel shapes how we relate to these groups. 
Let me say this, a word before we dig in. You say, hadn't you said enough before we dig in? But let me say a word before we dig in. Remember this, and I'm really getting this from verses 1 and 2, before the word honor. The gospel demands that we esteem others as more significant than ourselves. Now, that would be enough for us to close the Bible, pray, and go home. The Bible, the gospel, demands that we esteem others as more significant than ourselves. It was C.S. Lewis again who said, The humble man, listen to this, the humble man will not be thinking about humility. He won't be thinking about himself at all. We learn to esteem others as more significant than ourselves because this is what God has done in Christ for us. Our honoring others flows from His first honoring us. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Remember this. We're not ever trying to initiate anything. We're not ever trying to instigate anything. We're just following the leader. He had a thought of us before we ever thought of Him, before we even had a thought, as unfathomable as that is. So our esteeming others is all because of what He has done for us in Christ. Our honoring others flows from Him honoring us. You say, He honored us? He esteemed us? Absolutely. If He hadn't have, we would have never had this thing that we celebrate called salvation. Listen to the Bible in Philippians 2. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be exploited. I love the uh, Christian Standard Bible's translation of that word. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be exploited. Instead, what did he do? He emptied himself. How? By assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Why did he do all that? All for your sake and for your salvation. All for you. You see how well he honored you? What is man, the psalmist says, that you're mindful of him? Put your name there. What is man? Who am I, O Lord, that you are mindful of me? But that's exactly what he's done. And so these truths of honor greet us in the first two verses of chapter 5. Remember, Timothy was told in chapter 4 and verse 12 not to let anyone despise him because of his youth. He's 35 or about that. And he's told not to let anyone come and despise him because of his youthfulness. But then listen to what he's told. He's told to give mutual respect for the different groups that make up the community. He's not to stand above them. He's to stand amongst them as an example of one who stands above them, who is also within them. And so there's a gospel-rich tone throughout all the pages of Scripture. And you know what the tone is? It's a tone of mercy. It's a tone of grace. And it's my prayer as we think about, as we get to this moment of digging in, that that tone of mercy and grace will saturate from the pages of Scripture into my daily life and into your daily life.
where we esteem others as more significant than ourselves. What shape does a gospel community take? Number one, care for the vulnerable. Care for the vulnerable. I'm getting that right from the passage concerning widows. Honor widows. That's what he says first. A gospel-shaped community will care for the vulnerable. What does James say? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pure and undefiled religion. Orphans and widows are mentioned. So that should clue us in on something. Jesus cares for the vulnerable. His ministry shows it. The widows were the vulnerable in society and the church. And remember, when Paul's writing this, the life expectancy for most women during this time was into their 30s. And so a widow who had made it into their 60s, she'd made it a while above what was expected for the life expectancy of the time. And the widows were the vulnerable in society, and the church as God's community is called to care for the vulnerable. Let me make this statement. Listen carefully. The mission of the church is not to care for the vulnerable. Listen to me carefully. The mission of the church is not to care for the vulnerable, but the mission of the church means that we will care for the vulnerable. You see the difference? Caring for the vulnerable serves the mission. You say, what's the mission? The mission is salvation to the ends of the earth. The mission that we have as a church, listen, is to hold before the world the message of chapter 3 and verse 16. Look at what 3 and 16 says. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So the question then becomes, how do we then hold forth the message of 316? And we're to hold it forth not in word only, but also in deed. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Do you see that? How do we uphold the truth? By the way that we live. And how specifically do we need to live? Well, that's the reason Timothy's written. He's entrusted with the gospel to guard the good deposit in a fresh, new community that is dominated by pagan worship, that is dominated by the cult of Diana, the cult of Artemis in the temple, dominated and the gospel of Christ is to shine as a light in that dark place. And so he's saying, Timothy... All these false doctrines are abounding. This is how you should conduct yourself and so honor God. So think about widows. In the early church, an entire office of the church was created to ensure that the vulnerables were taken care of. And what's that office? Deacons. Deacons. A whole office of the church was created to ensure that widows and the vulnerable were cared for. Deacons. Acts chapter 6. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Why? Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
And the twelve summoned the full member of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Do you see? Notice. The mission is not the widows. But serving widows and the vulnerable is part of the mission. And so to make things even more clear, I can't get into the details tonight because of time. Paul lays out a paradigm for considering who qualifies as widows and should be cared for the church. Briefly, let me walk through this text and you can read it. First, he says in verse 3, you've got to determine who's actually a widow. And apparently, those who qualify as a widow is not just one whose husband has died. As strange as that may seem, that does not automatically qualify you for those who are being cared for by the church. Look at verse 4. The, the, the principle is family first. Family first. And then look at what happens in verses 5 through 7. Paul lays out who a real widow is. And then look at what happens in verse 8. What does he do? He reiterates the principle again. Family first. Family first. And then he goes further in verses 9 and 10 to tell us who a real widow is. And then he says this in verse 11 through 15, no young widows. And the reason why young widows is because he lays it out rather plainly. He says that uh, younger widows, they're full of passions that might draw them away from Christ and they desire to marry. You say, well, is Paul against marriage? Well, obviously there's something here that I believe that he's relating to. He's not against marriage because he says right here, in verse 14, that he encourages the widows to marry. So it can't be against marriage for the widows. That can't be what it is. I think that what it is is these passions are drawing them away. They're going to marry an unbeliever. So he says, don't enroll those whose passions are carrying them away, and they are incurring, verse 12, condemnation for having abandoned their form of faith. And the way that they abandon their form of faith is by another passage that he tells the Corinthians, they're being unequally yoked to unbelievers. And then look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. There's a reiteration again of that first principle of family first. And further, honoring widows flows from the fifth commandment, honor father and mother. And honoring father and mother means caring for their needs. And caring for their needs is a picture of the gospel. Remember the gospel, Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you and I were still helpless and vulnerable, God, He displayed His immeasurable kindness towards us. And so we honor widows. We honor the vulnerable because of God's immeasurable kindness Towards us, Jesus did this in His earthly ministry. We care for the least of these because that's exactly who we are. We were the least of these. And God did not regard equality with God a thing to be exploited or held on to. Instead, He sought to honor. He sought to honor us by giving His life for us. Number two, a gospel-shaped community will encourage your leaders. And I'm taking this from the elder passage. The church has a company of leaders called elders. 
And those who labor in preaching and teaching, the Bible says, verse 17, are worthy of double honor. Teaching and preaching. I can testify to this. They're labor-intensive. Labor-intensive. I'll never forget it in my ordination. Charles Stanley, he said to me, he said, Andrew, some ask me after 50 years of ministry if it ever gets easier. He said preparation might get easier, but the burden is always the same. And there are two passages that come to my mind that help demonstrate the principle that this passage is outlining. James chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brethren. And here's the reason. Because we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If that doesn't cause the preacher's knees to knock, nothing will. Many of you ought not to become teachers. Because we will incur a stricter judgment. The other passage is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 17. Listen to what 7 says. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then in verse 17, obey your leaders. Submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account. Beloved, you're not responsible for me in this moment. But I, Brother Jimmy, Eric here this evening, and all the other ministers who labor in preaching and teaching, we're accountable for you. So the Bible says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning. And then it says this, that would be of no advantage to you. We're entrusted to care for your souls. We don't want to do that begrudgingly, with groaning. That's no advantage to you because we're entrusted with your souls. You're not entrusted with ours. This is why we incur a stricter judgment. This is why many shouldn't become teachers. This is why the standards are so high. This is why those who are leaders have to constantly reflect. Think about it. The high qualifications, just glance over there perhaps in, in your text in chapter 3. The high qualifications of an elder, they've already been outlined in chapter 3. So if the proper work is done of ensuring the elder is a true elder, he ought to be given the benefit of the doubt. And that's the reason to not accept a charge unless it's on the basis of two to three witnesses. So you remember that. When someone says, did you hear this? You say, did you hear that from someone else? Or is that just you saying that? However, the high call of an elder because of what an elder is to do to remind people of the radiant loveliness of Christ if sin is persistent. The demand is to make a public example of Him to leave those who are within the church with the fear of the Lord and to portray the right message to those outside the church or maybe those on the fence 
who are in the community that God, who are on the fence concerning the community that God is building. These community of confessors. Remember this. God is building His community, and how's He doing it? He's forming hearts, and the chief way that He forms hearts is through the Spirit-inspired ministry of the Word. The voice box God uses to get His Word to the ears and into the hearts of people is an elder who labors in preaching and teaching, and there is then no room for this message to be hindered by a dirty life, by an unclean life, by a life filled with unrepented of sin. And this is the reason that Paul applies these strict principles to the preacher. And in case we think that these statements are harsh, look at the parenthesis in verse 23. Here Paul shows concern and care. Look at what he says. He says, take a little wine for your stomach. His angle is guarding the good deposit that Jesus has entrusted to him, whatever it takes. Number three, and this is brief, I promise. A gospel shaped, a community shaped by the gospel will work as unto the Lord. Look at chapter six in the first two verses. This statement is the most difficult, and yet it is the most brevity that is dealt with. It's dealt with in the most brevity. Every one of us is under a yoke. Paul's favorite title for himself, what does he call himself? A bondservant of the Lord Jesus. He's writing while he's in chains for his master. Paul is honoring his master who is worthy of all praise, and the principle of honor applies even for those who are not believers. Some masters might not be worthy of honor. Paul says, do your work as unto the Lord, and so prove that your trust is in the Lord. The main motivation for servants is to remember whose they are. They belong to the Lord God. And notice verse 2 of chapter 6. The teaching of God is connected with the name of God. Our teaching, remember, is visible in how we behave. God is building His church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. And the stones that He uses are living stones. These living stones are living sacrifices that He molds and shapes into a form that He needs for His kingdom. As we build Christian community, we look to those around us and we remember Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endure the cross, and despise the shame. Remember that that joy set before Jesus was you, was me. This Jesus, if He's willing to go to that great length, He is dedicated to finish what He started in you and me. He is the potter. We are the clay. He fits us for Himself. And the question that I leave with you this evening is how is He fitting you today? Father, take us. Mold us. Make us.
fit to serve you. Be tender with us. Remember that as you fashion us into what pleases you, remember, Lord God, be mindful that we are but dust. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Hearing is Believing. For more information or to contact us, please visit hearingisbelieving.org.